Articles by Desiring God Habits of Grit Athletics, Grace, and the Christian Work Ethic Written and read by David Mathis Not many of us are farmers. Not anymore. And relatively few of us have served as soldiers in combat. But perhaps some of us have tried our hands at competitive athletics, the kind you train for, and not just show up to play. You may not have been aware of it at the time, but if you have been a soldier, an athlete, or a farmer, you have been challenged, like increasingly few modern people, to learn how to really work. That is, you are presented with some objective, concrete challenge. Train for battle. Till the field. Practice for game day. And you either put in the required effort to be successful on the field, or you grew weary, cut corners, and soon gave up. You either demonstrated you didn't have it in you to keep straining forward against the obstacles to persevere and achieve the goal, or you found it, doubtless with help from coaches or teammates. However firsthand your experience as a soldier, athlete, or farmer, Scripture stands ready to fill in, supplement, recast, or override our personal experiences, or lack thereof, and teach us a Christian work ethic for our own joy, the good of others, and the glory of Christ. And one of the classic places to anchor in Scripture to ponder our work ethic mentions the very concrete and objective occupations of soldiering, athletics, and farming. Like the Apostle What Paul has in view in 2 Timothy 2, 1-7 is gospel advance through disciple-making. The gospel he has entrusted to his disciple, he now charges Timothy to entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Verse 2. That's four generations in a blink. Paul, to Timothy, to faithful men, to others also, and implied is that the others also will disciple still others also. But simple as the plan for gospel multiplication may sound, the work will not be easy. It will be opposed by the world, the flesh, and the devil almost constantly and often at the most inconvenient times. Paul himself writes from prison. Timothy can read the writing on the wall. If such efforts dedicated to gospel advance landed Paul in jail, how long until it catches up with Timothy? But rather than shy away from the task, Paul calls his protege to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Then, verses 4 to 6, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Consider first, and together, the requirements of soldiers and farmers. Then we'll turn at greater length to athletics. Like soldiers, and farmers. Even if soldiering and farming are foreign to you, as they are to me, the broad nature of the work is plain enough. Soldiers are men under authority who do not serve alone but alongside other soldiers in bands or battalions. A single trained champion with a weapon may be a formidable foe until met by hundreds or thousands trained to act as one. The power in soldiering comes from this collective force. Men trained together to act together 
under the authority and clear direction of an able commander. And to do so, to both get battle ready and stay ready, soldiers must overcome the temptation of getting entangled in civilian pursuits. The soldier is one who has been called out of normal civilian life and received into a new company to train and stand ready to act to defend civilians. And good soldiers, Paul says, aim to please the one who enlisted them. They deny themselves the immediate appeals and comforts of civilian life to endure in their calling and, in the end, enjoy greater, more enduring satisfaction than abandoning their mission for trivialities. Similarly, though distinctly, farmers plan, till the soil, weed, wait with patience for rain and growth, and in the end, engage in the arduous labor of harvesting. And in doing so, the farmer holds in his hands and enjoys the reward as he ought, the first share of the crops. Farmers have much to teach us, not only about hard work and anticipating rewards, but also patience. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, says James 5, 7 and 8, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Like athletes. Paul, in particular, may have more to teach us through athletics than we first expect. In addition to 2 Timothy 2.5, he takes up athletic imagery in 1 Corinthians 9.24-27, Philippians 3.13-14, 1 Timothy 4.7-8, and, and 2 Timothy 4.7. Hebrews also, written by someone in Paul's circle, draws on athletic imagery. The lesson in 2 Timothy 2 is consistent with the portrait of athletics elsewhere in Paul's letters and in Hebrews. First, maturity comes through training, not through coasting or indulging desires for immediate comfort. That is, even before the competition, even before the discomfort of enduring on race day is the obstacle of training. Effective training requires discomfort. The body is not conditioned by leisure, but by stress and strain, and especially through persisting in discomfort. Both body and mind are trained by constant practice, leading to maturity. Those of us who are mature, writes Paul, straining forward to what lies ahead, press on toward the goal for the prize. All straining, whether bodily or spiritually, requires some measure of toil and striving. Second then, in the competition itself, athletes press on through weariness, frustration, discouragement, and pain. Learning to press through and endure discomfort in training readies the body and will to press on through resistance on race day. Verse 5 highlights a specific temptation to overcome, cutting corners. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Whether in training or competition, the successful athlete knows that his subjective desires do not rule over the objective rules of the contest. He is not bigger than the race or the game. He cannot train or compete as he pleases according to his momentary wishes, but must exercise self-control. This is Paul's own testimony in 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. 
Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Third, and most significantly, across the New Testament passages, the key to enduring discomfort is looking to the reward. Whether in training or in the event itself, Paul and Hebrews emphasize the reward, the crown, the prize, a vital element that makes the lesson for work ethic particularly Christian. Paul explicitly commends the prize. So run that you may obtain it. The imperishable crown that awaits is not icing on the cake, but the reward to be kept in mind and remembered to keep us going when we meet with obstacles and resistance. Paul himself, as he comes to the end of his race, is not ashamed, but intentional, to draw attention to the reward, which, through anticipation, has fueled his perseverance. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. But not only Paul. Where did he learn it? No one teaches us to look to the reward like Jesus in his teaching, his example, and more. Like Jesus. In his teaching, Jesus again and again draws our attention to the reward that is from your Father and is great in heaven. In Matthew 5 and 6 alone, he explicitly mentions the reward some nine times. Perhaps it was this plain, almost hedonistic thread that prompted Paul to capture an aspect of Christ's teaching as, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Yet, every bit as clear as Jesus' teaching is the power of his example. The climactic 11th chapter of Hebrews turns our attention several times to the coming reward and then presents Christ himself as the paradigm of pressing on and persisting through pain by looking to the reward. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When we look to Jesus, we look to one who himself endured the greatest of pain and shame, the cross, by looking to his reward for the joy that was set before him, that is, being seated at his father's right hand. He finished his course, looking to the reward. And so too, in like fashion, and looking to him, Hebrews would have us run our race with endurance, not grow weary or faint-hearted, but lift our drooping hands and strengthen our weak knees. Like a Christian. But Jesus not only taught us to look to the reward and then practice what he taught. In finishing his course and achieving the victory of the cross, he secured us who have faith in him as his own. Mark this, we do not earn him 
with our holy grit, but he earned us with his. We press on as Paul did because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Don't reverse the order. Slavery or freedom hangs on the sequence. Christ's perfect grit comes first, which then makes our imperfect but growing effort possible. Or you might say, Christ's full acceptance comes first. Then he goes to work on our work ethic. So a common thread links the work ethic of soldiers, athletes, farmers, Christ himself, and Christians alike. We recognize and own the particulars of our calling. We exercise self-control to overcome the immediate desires of the flesh. We endure in discomfort with God's help for the reward, the greater joy promised at the end, which streams into the present to give meaning and strength to keep straining and striving. And what makes it particularly Christian and not simply human is this. We do all our pressing on from fullness and security of soul, not emptiness and insecurity, knowing that Christ Jesus has made me his own. For more resources, visit DesiringGod.org.